Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got commentator and writer Dominique Samuels, Lee Jones, who's a professor of political economy and international relations, and the former editor of Labour List, Peter Edwards. Good evening to you three. And you know the drill by now on Jubes & Co. It's not just about us here. It's about you as well at home. What is on your mind tonight? What do you think to the stories that we're going to be discussing? Have I missed anything? Are you talking about anything and we're not? Tell me about it. You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk, or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget as well, we're on YouTube. You can subscribe there watch us live see the best bits we've got a, an app we've got a podcast we're on the radio so you've got no excuses have you really we're everywhere we'll follow you around wherever you go uh, even into the toilet if that's your thing you many of you now have radios there so wherever you are wherever you're listening tonight you are very welcome good evening now our top story boris johnson has addressed the ukrainian parliament today describing the conflict as ukraine's finest hour as the first Western leaders speak at the Ukrainian parliament, he echoed the words of Winston Churchill and set out a new £300 million package of support for the Ukrainian military. The Prime Minister told the parliament the West continues to stand by Ukraine. And it all we'll carry on supplying Ukraine alongside your other friends with weapons, with funding and humanitarian aid until we have achieved our long-term goal which must be so to fortify Ukraine that no one will ever dare attack you again. Now, all of this rhetoric, of course, comes as Europe faces a crunch point in the next few weeks over gas and oil supplies. Moscow is demanding fuel payments to be made in rubles, as we know, something the EU states won't be able to do because of sanctions, apparently. Uh, Europe and other countries are still undecided how to wean themselves off this Russian energy. So, I mean, it gives us a little bit of a predicament, I think. I'll start with you, Lee. There's a few different things uh, to unpack here. On the one hand, it seems completely absurd to me that we are sending hundreds of millions of pounds worth of aid plus hundreds of millions of pounds worth of military aid to this camp while simultaneously, I say we as the West, by the way, I don't mean the UK, simultaneously spending an absolute fortune with Russia on oil and gas. And that, we go around in circles about this, talking about this all the time. We don't seem to be any closer to a resolution on that basic point, do we? Not really. Um, the EU, some of the EU states are moving a bit closer towards oil sanctions. So Germany has said it might be possible to bring forward an oil embargo. But there are other EU member states that get a lot of their oil from Russia. So Hungary gets 58% of its oil from Russia, Slovakia 96%. And their pipelines are very much tied to Russia. So it's, it's very difficult for them to sim simply reorient to global markets and buy the oil from elsewhere. And as for gas, Russia supplies about 45% of the EU's gas. And again, that is something where you're very much hardwired into a particular supply because of gas pipelines. It's much, it's much more difficult to simply retool and say, OK, we'll import liquid natural gas from overseas. You have to build new infrastructure, new ports, for example, to import that. It's much more expensive. So you're looking at a process of years to wean yourself away from Russian gas. It simply cannot be done overnight. 
And by which time, by the way, the conflicts, hopefully, I say, would be over. And when you're saying wean yourself off and go to other places, the talk of places like Saudi Arabia being people's primary suppliers in cases. And, I mean, they don't exactly have a glowing human rights record themselves, do they? So, you know, where, is there anyone in this day and age that's actually crystal clean that you can trade with, with a good conscience? Not really. Um, the United States also would like to supply liquid natural gas to Europe. It's much better for the United States to have Western Europe depend on the United States than it is to depend on Russia and that arguably is one of the United States strategic objectives in all of this is to regain US primacy in Western Europe which is doing quite well at the moment. Dominique itching to get in I see. <laughs> I mean I think for the US it could all also be um, one of its strategic errors because although there is a place for the US um, in supplying more energy it quite simply doesn't have the supply at the moment so it's failing on that point and secondly when it comes to the issue of weaning ourselves off Russian energy, some European states are actually trying to circumvent the sanctions in really quite a funny way by um, paying into a bank that the energy company Gazprom uses, um, using dollars and euros, and, and that currency actually being transferred into rubles. Yeah, it's which, part of their settlement process. Which conveniently, um, you know, aligns with the sanctions. And all in all, I think that this really does reveal that the basic point of this conflict and our European partners' participation in it is to seek some sort of resolution. And funnily enough for me, I don't think that that has been actually at the forefront um, of the agenda, especially when it comes to Boris Johnson as well. He's played a pivotal role. I don't think anyone can argue with that. But surely we should be pushing for some sort of resolution. It doesn't matter how brutal, and Russia has been brutal in Ukraine, that is the way war works, essentially. You should be pushing for some sort of resolution, but we don't seem to be any closer to one. Yeah, and Peter, the, the talk of another £300 of... Uh, sorry, 300 quid. That'd be a, that'd be a rubbish... <laughs> that'd be a rubbish aid gesture. <laughs> but uh, £300 million of military aid uh, has been announced today. And I have to say, I've seen quite a divided response to this. Uh, I've seen people saying, you know, that's not enough, we need to do more. And then I've seen the other side of the fence, which says, hang on a second, where are we going to get all this money from? What about the... Uh, cost of living crisis and the situation here. Where do you stand on it? Well, there's a lot there. So I think Boris Johnson's speech today was good. And I think, although I'm from the Labour side, I think we have to admit that. It's the Prime Minister's job to speak for the nation when there's an international crisis. I thought it was a good speech, perhaps a coincidence or not, that he makes it 48 hours before UK polling day when he's expected to lose very heavily. But we are where we are. He's announced £300 million. I'd actually like to see a lot more. And we went through this with financial sanctions at the start of the crisis, where the government started with quite small numbers and a small, uh, limited group of oligarchs, and they stepped up the sanctions week two, week three, week four. And I'm sure we're going to do that with the military aid as well, because in terms of government spending, £300 million is not much at all. The UK defence budget is about £42 billion, including capital spending. So I believe we should and will be sending a lot more in military aid. And then to answer your point about where does the money come from, I believe in all Whitehall budgets, but especially in terms of defence, where you don't know what's coming up, there is a contingencies fund as well. So they're not necessarily taking it from a pot somewhere else in government to give to Ukraine. There will be a reserve fund in the MOD. It's going to have to be a big fund because, I quote, Boris Johnson said the UK will carry on supplying Ukraine until no-one dares to attack it again. Exactly. I mean, that could be years down the line. Yeah. Dominique raises a good point, Lee, when she's saying, you know, there's a lot of talk on kind of sanctions, oil and gas and aid this and aid that. Resolution 
doesn't seem to be getting discussed as much as it perhaps should be. Is that because it's happening behind closed doors? Is it? Do you think it's progressing in the way that it ought to be in terms of peace talks, bringing people together, etc.? No, for, the, for Dominic's right. The I think this has been neglected from the very start. The, the two principal parties, Ukraine and Russia, were discussing peace terms almost from the beginning of the invasion for about a month. Um, but the, the talks faltered because the two sides simply have different outlook. You know, Ukraine is demanding international security guarantees that would approximate membership of NATO, which is not acceptable, I think, to the NATO powers because they don't really want to fight for Ukraine. They're willing to fight. Do they? But only, only, <laughs> Do they not? <laughs> they're, no, they're willing to fight, but only to the last Ukrainian. Right? They're not actually willing to put boots on the ground to defend exactly. Ukraine. And there are obviously big questions about the status of eastern Ukraine and, and, uh, and Crimea as well. So the talks didn't really go anywhere. And then since then, there's been a series of reported atrocities uh, in the war zone committed by Russian troops, which then, you know, everybody is saying, oh, you know, Putin is basically like Hitler. He's a war criminal. How do you negotiate with Hitler? There's no possibility of negotiating a peace with Hitler. This is why those kinds of comparisons and, and talking about war crimes and prosecutions and so on, all that means is that you take negotiation off the table yeah. and it means a total victory is the only one that's sought. And that's clearly the objective of the NATO powers now. They've made that very obvious. They want to defeat Russia in the field mm. and they want to inflict you know, total military catastrophe on Russia, which I'm not sure that Ukraine is actually in a position to do, no matter how much we aid, how much aid we pour into Ukraine. So they're setting up now for a long war that could go on for many years, which many. would be totally disastrous. And, and I think that's a point that many people are neglecting. And also on the point of aid, I think you can send as much aid as you want, but um, I was doing some reading into this, and um, the aid that the Ukrainian military are actually asking for um, in terms of military equipment, they're being given by NATO much newer military equipment than they're actually um, able to use. What they're specifically asking for um, is Soviet-era weaponry because they're more able um, to navigate that weaponry. So they're being given newer weapons by NATO but not actually being given enough additional training for them to be able to actually use that equipment. So there's only so much aid and, and military equipment you can give if you're not actually putting that together with boots on the ground, which NATO isn't prepared to do, so it's sort of going around... But there are NATO boots on the ground in neighbouring countries mm. which are training the Ukrainian military in how to use this, this high-end kit. But not and enough, according The to United States is now directing the fire of the Ukrainian military against Russian targets, so it's getting as involved in Ukraine as it is in Yemen, for example, where it is directing the Saudi bombing campaign that has completely wrecked Yemen and made over 20 million people dependent on international food aid. There's another angle um, to this situation today that's been in the press a lot, Peter. It's all about the refugee um, scheme, a lot of criticism again today about how that is not progressing. What's your thoughts on that? Well, it's very sad because I think it's something that we all want to work, whatever your broader view is, on the government. But, I mean, we've even had Conservative backbench MPs former government colleagues of Boris Johnson who've taken in refugees, good on them, but saying it's complex or it's taking uh, too long to get underway. And I don't doubt for a moment ho Home Office civil servants are working very hard, but I, for anyone that's had any interest in kind of Whitehall in Britain for a number of years, there do seem to be an awful lot of problems tied to the Home Office. Lee, Lee might know more about this than me, but whether it's uh, Windrush or leadership issues or, uh, I mean, political leadership issues um, or the handling and the mishandling of asylum and immigration claims. So I, I'm, I am 
we're all supportive. We all want Ukrainian re refugees to be housed safely in Britain ASAP. But I, I'm very nervous and fearful about whether that's going to step up sufficiently quickly. I, th I think the rhetoric on this is, I think, a bit naive in a way. Um, I was watching the interview that Boris Johnson had um, this morning and the interviewer was saying to him, you know, it's women and children and, and they're not being let into the country fast enough. And, and Boris said back, I think quite reasonably, that there are security concerns because there is an issue if, if you know, it's visa-free tr travel for every, anyone that wants to come here that can be taken advantage of. So it may speed up the process, but you'll be in a situation where you have thousands of people here that are vulnerable to trafficking, vulnerable mm. to sexual assault, vulnerable to homelessness, abuse. There is a process that, that needs, to, needs to be done. And whilst I agree, I think it has had a bumpy start. I think when it comes to the rhetoric of, you know, we need to let everyone in now, I think we sort of have to be a bit more realistic. Yeah, because there is a balancing act, isn't there, Peter? Because, of course, we're all seeing the desperate situation that many people find themselves in. But ultimately, the government does have a responsibility to us, the UK citizens, to do what it can do in terms of keeping us as safe as possible. And that does mean doing levels of checks on anyone that wants to um, come into this country to live here. What's your thoughts on all of this? I think this? that's right. I mean, the, apparently the number of visas that have been awarded to Ukrainian refugees is 86,000 visas, and only 27,000 refugees have actually arrived. And of those, the local government association said last month that 144 Ukrainian households had registered homeless. So that's 0.1% of the total visas that have been awarded. So I'm not saying this is a scheme that's working well. And Peter's right that the Home Office is often said to be dysfunctional. And it was a, it was a Labour Home Secretary, if I'm not wrong, about 20 years ago, said it was you know, not fit for purpose. John Reid, yeah, that's John right. Reed. John Wright. And I, don't, and I think there's still so many problems with the Home Office. I think this is, this is an issue. But it's a small issue. But then, even then, for 144 families to be arrived and to be in such unsuitable accommodation that they're registered homeless is, I think, a tragedy. But then look at the way we treat our own homeless exactly. people in this country. <laughs> there are 227,000 households in this country that are registered homeless. 62% of those are so-called hidden homeless. So they're couch surfing, yeah, they're living in bedsits, they're living in beds in a shed or squats or something like that. 79,000 people living in temporary accommodation, often you know, housed alongside asylum seekers, refugees in, in large hotels and so on. I'm not talking about the Ritz here. We have a serious problem of homelessness in this country for our own citizens, which is not being sorted out. And it's just getting worse year on year. We're at a five year high at the moment. So it's not that surprising when very desperate poor people come in on very short notice that we also struggle to house them appropriately because we're not housing our own people. Mm, I, I can imagine. Well, in fact, I can see that my uh, inbox will have thoughts in there about people saying, well, hang on a second, because we spend nearly £5 million a day uh, putting people that cross the channel up in hotels. So why don't we do that with some of our own homeless people? Anyway, let me know your thoughts on all of that Ukraine situation. Is Boris Johnson doing enough? Uh, what do you think about the refugee scheme? Is it being effective, ineffective or half-baked and a dysfunctional disaster? which was the claim made today. Let me know all your thoughts on that, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about grammar schools. This is the latest idea to help kind of do the whole levelling up thing. We hear that all the time, don't we? Is grammar schools or are grammar schools the answer? We'll be looking at that and more in a couple of minutes.
Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. A quick reminder, if you just tuned in, as to who's keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight. We've got commentator and writer Dominique Samuels, Lee Jones, the Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, and the former editor of Labour List, Peter Edwards. Lots of you have been getting in touch with that last uh, conversation about Ukraine. Keith says, why is it that all the best things that Boris Johnson says come from Winston Churchill. Richard said, Boris has failed to acquire the hero status that he desperately desires in the UK, so now he's off trying to get it in Ukraine with our money. Oh, Richard, you're not messing around. Michael says, Boris is doing the right thing. Our sacrifice is nothing compared to theirs. Uh, Raoul says, it's totally criminal that the government is sending hundreds of millions of pounds of aid to the Ukraine while the British people suffer from the cost of living crisis that they created. Marina says Ukraine must win and they need money to help them do that. There you go. Keep your thoughts coming in. GBviews at gbnews.uk. Now, uh, when did you go to school? Where did you go to school? Did you go to a grammar school, I ask, because it's been 12 years since Labour banned new grammar schools being built. And now a group of Tory MPs say they should be brought back. This is all, of course, part of the levelling up strategy. The MPs claim that education is a postcode lottery with the majority of grammar schools in the south-east of England. What do we think to this? I'll start with you on this, Peter. Um, for me personally, I am obviously, I talk about this often, a northerner. I believe passionately in levelling up. I get very frustrated, though, because I think there's no real overall strategy. It all seems to be tinkering around the edges. And today's latest idea is about grammar school. So there's two parts to this, I guess. Firstly, do we think they work? And secondly, do we think they're going to do anything on the levelling up side? Your thoughts? Well, I think they do work. Uh, I went to a grammar school in Essex for two years and I found it hugely positive, but uh, it's a very controversial um, issue in the Labour Party. As you said, uh, the last Labour government uh, restricted any new opening of gra grammar schools and that was essentially... Uh, part of it, there was some anti-grammar feeling, but it was also a desire uh, to raise standards across the board and the idea that people in every town, north and south, were, with obviously education being devolved in Scotland, but in north and south of England have the opportunity for a gold standard education. Equally bad. Um, there are about 164 grammar schools in England now. I actually don't think there's going to be any new ones opened. This story today came from a Tory backbencher <coughs> publishing a report essentially lobbying Boris Johnson. As you said, the Tories have kept the restrictions on grammar schools while they've been in power, but I think it would trigger a big... Uh, row in the Tory party if they tried to open new grammar schools. Uh, the Labour Party would not support it. There's so many other things going on from cost of living to Ukraine that, and apologies for pouring cold water on it, but I don't think there will be any new grammar schools under Boris Johnson because he won't get it through Parliament. Dominique? Um, I think that's an interesting point. Personally, for me, um, I agree. I do think grammar schools work. Um, I didn't go to one myself, but... Um, I lived close to grammar schools in my area and I knew a few people that went there. And I think the benefit of them is that children um, are around other children that are of a similar academic ability to them. And teachers also get to teach children that are of a similar academic, academic ability. Because the problem in normal schools, as I'll call them, is that 
you know, you are around a lot of children with very differing academic abilities and you need to be able to cater for all of those children. On the other hand, though, I think the danger with some grammar schools, especially the ones that were in my area, is that a lot of middle-class children that could afford um, tutors and people that could go around to the houses and, and help them actually make the grades for the grammar school tests after school, they then benefited from a bit of an unfair advantage, I think. So I think if there is going to be a push for new grammar schools, I think the playing field should be levelled a bit in terms of perhaps um, working class free school meal students receiving vouchers to be able to get free tutoring or after school education in order to balance that out a bit because it does end up just being a place where middle class kids go when they can't afford private school, in all honesty. What do you make to this, Lee? Well, this story goes round and round, doesn't it? We seem to always de be debating whether to bring grammar schools back. And the thing is, in the UK, grammar schools have this kind of mythical status. You know, back in the day when we had grammar schools, then we had social mobility. You know, bright kids from a working class background could get a grammar school education and really get on in life. The truth is that there's nothing magical about grammar schools. It's not that they're full of, you know, fantastic teachers um, or they have some kind of magical technique that other schools are not using. The golden age of grammar schools was in the post-war decades, and that was associated with a massive expansion in the economy. So you had the, the biggest sustained period of economic growth in the history of this country was the 30 years after Second World War. The jobs for everybody. And you had a massive expansion in the service economy, so a massive expansion in the number of middle-class service jobs that working class people could go to grammar school and, and enter. The problem we have at the moment is a flatlining economy leading to no real opportunities and no real jobs, and so flatlining social mobility. So the statistics clearly show that if you were born in the 1970s, much more likely to have the same kind of occupation as your parents than if you were born in the 50s, because social mobility has declined since we've moved to a new economic model in the 1980s. And if you look at all the... You know, if you, if you read the Daily Mail, which I do from time to time to see what the middle classes are thinking, they're terrified because they can see the opportunities for their own kids shrinking. There's so many complaints now about lower and middle middle class kids not getting into the professions anymore. They're being squeezed. It's not because there's no grammar schools. It's because there are, there's a massive shortage of, of graduate jobs to go into because the economy is flatlining. Tories like to talk about grammar schools because they lack ideas about how to improve economic growth. Let's just get some quick stats, by the way, if you're wondering. Um, I know, Peter, you mentioned a little bit of this earlier on, but there's 164 grammar schools in the UK, teaching 172,000 pupils, with 3.4 million secondary school pupils in the UK. That means just 5% of them are attending grammar schools. There's nearly 9 million pupils attending nearly 24,500 schools in England. Now, panel, I've got to be honest, I don't think I'd actually get through onto grammar school. I don't think I'd pass my 11 plus. Just going to put that out there. I failed mine and there's a bit of a myth sometimes that your life is devastated. And I think I recognise that it does affect what part of the country you grew up in. But uh, I didn't pass the 11 plus and I just shrugged it off. Well, I've got a question for you. So I've got a question panel. This is from an 11 plus exam um, paper. This is all about non-verbal reasoning. Right, so 
From the right-hand side, I'm assuming something is going to come up somewhere. Oh, crikey, oh. Mikey. If you're, if you listen, if you're listening on the radio rather than watching, you're <laughs> off scot-free. You're, you're off the panel for this one. Uh, but on the screen, I'm putting a weird and wonderful collection of object-shaped things up on the screen. From the right-hand side, you need to find the figure that's like the two on the left-hand side. Does anyone know the answer? I can't really... What do you mean, the figure? Hang on, I don't know. I'm just reading out what it says. They're not my questions, Peter. From the right-hand side, you need to find the figure, the diagram, that's like the two on the left-hand side. Is it C and... Come on. A? <laughs> so Dominique says C and A. Peter? I think I need to go to Specsavers. I don't, Lee, I can't really what do you say? <laughs> what I say is this is exactly the kind of test that middle-class parents hire private tutors to school their kids in how to pass so they can get into these kinds of schools because it's not the kind of skill that you would learn in any other circumstance. <laughs> well, I've got a say, panel. The answer is B. Uh, I have to also confess, I have absolutely no idea why oh. the answer was B. And I'm looking at the answer and I still don't get why the answer was B. And as I said, by the way, I certainly would fail uh, the 11 plus and that, quite frankly, has just reminded me why. And I think you hit a really interesting point, uh, Lee, because I do think so much of this is about uh, remembering and then being able to regurgitate ridiculous stuff that you're never going to use in your normal everyday life. And some people have a great mind for recall, others don't. Nigel has been in touch uh, saying, no grammar school for me, Michelle. Uh, he says, I was too thick at 11 to even take the 11 plus. Secondary modern was great. He says, I did five years part-time at a technical college, ended up in a boardroom position and later on, my own consultancy. Good for you. Ian says, I was a minor's son and both me and my sister went to grammar school. She became a librarian. I became the financial director of a multi-million pound global company. He says, Wigan Grammar School was one of the oldest and the best in the country. There you go. I did have another question, another uh, 11 plus question, but quite frankly, I'm not going to embarrass myself anymore. Or my panel, for that matter. I don't think any of us are going to get it right. So we'll leave it there. Cross to Nigel Farage instead. Uh, Nigel Farage, good evening to you. You are in Westminster. What is coming up on your show tonight? We're going to talk grammar schools too, Michelle. I very much take the view that they were wonderful for social mobility. I know not everyone could go, but it was a great way for people from poorer backgrounds to reach their absolute potential. So that's very much there. And Jonathan Gullis, MP for Stoke North, will join me here in the studio to talk about that. Uh, we're also going to talk about the GP crisis. Why are GP numbers going down as the population continues to go up? What's to be done? And joining me on Talking Pines, a man who has appeared, appeared on more TV shows than almost anybody, former great hurdler, athlete, Chris Akabusi. Sounds good, Nigel. We shall see you at seven o'clock. I was just about to ask him an 11 plus question, but do you know what? I just, who gets these questions right? Can you imagine the pressure of being an 11 year old child expected to sit and you must feel, I mean, you just said then um, that some people often feel like it's the end of their world or you get all this pressure from your mum and your dad or whoever, you've got to pass this test or else, you know, that's your future, you've got to get into this school and then you feel it. Well, I failed, but I recognised I came from a fairly prosperous home, so perhaps I had other support mechanisms in life. And if you are from a, a family that does face great hardship, I think you might feel more pressure on your shoulders. Hey, well, look, you failed your 11 plus and you've 
still reach the heights of GB News. There is hope, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, for everybody out there. That's what I say. Going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk to you about burglaries. Have you ever had your home burgled? It must be appalling. It must be so scary. Uh, let me know if you have, because get this, over 500 burglaries a day are going unsolved. What are the police doing about it? And by the way, Jane, you've just messaged in saying, Michelle, I now know why I failed my 11 plus. Can I have another question, please? No, you can't. Get on Google. There's loads of them. There's a whole there's a whole suite of 11 plus questions. If I've got time, I might stick another one up before the end. But for now, that's all your 11 plus questions done. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Coming up on Dan Wharton tonight. Have we finally seen the end of the BBC licence fee? Former Culture Secretary John Whittingdale weighs in on whether Nadine Dorries will succeed in taking the Beeb to task. Plus, it's an evening of no-holds-barred opinion from best-selling author Lionel Shriver, Nigel Farage and Darren Grimes. Plus, I'll break down the headlines of the day with my superstar panel. Former Daily Star editor and current columnist Dawn Neeson, conservative commentator Calvin Robinson and broadcaster Narinda Kerr. That's Dan Wooten tonight, Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubery. Keeping me uh, company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got commentator and writer Dominique Samuels, Lee Jones, who's the Professor of Political Economy and International Relations, and the former editor of The Labour List, Peter Edwards. Good evening to you. Lots of conversations being had uh, during the break about that 11 plus question. Uh, I'm just going to pop it back on the screen if we're able to do that, because... Um, Dr. Lee uh, Jones, he reckons he's got the answer and he cracked it. So the answer, ladies and gentlemen, was B. Do you remember, Lee? Yes. Are you going to explain to the viewers? If you're listening on the radio, you're just going to have to take my word for it. It's a bonkers question, but nonetheless, Lee... Well, I'm not sure this explanation is correct, but if you look at the triangle on the left, the shaded portion is the part in, inside the overlapping triangles and then the, the external shape, the circle on the bottom, is also shaded. And that has, that's the same kind of pattern that you see in B. But I'm not sure why that's also like the square. It's difficult. I mean, this is why, the, this is why as I say, you have to get private tutors to school kids in how to do these kinds of puzzles. God, I was just saying to the panel in the break, if anyone saw me on the chase, um, you will know that general knowledge is not my forte. I'm all right if I'm on my own. But if you put me on national television and try and get me to answer general knowledge, I get a sweat on and I get it all wrong. I wouldn't even remember my own name, I don't think. So there's no chance. You're all very brave for trying to answer that question because I would have just been looking the other way or trying to change the subject or something. <laughs> so well done. Uh, Jane, you messaged in about that one. Uh, has your explanation there helped you? Does that make sense? Let me know. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? Talk about burglaries. Have you ever had your home broken into or your shed? Anything like that? What happened? Did you ring the police? If so, were they remotely bothered? Did they find out who did it? Was there a conviction? Do you remember what those things were when people used to actually get done for the crimes that they committed? Do you remember them? Uh, anyway, data from their home office shows that over 500 burglaries a day go unsolved. This equates to more than one and a half million unsolved burglaries in the last six years. These figures, of course, are apparently against a backdrop of low morale among the police. Uh, well, there's many reasons for that, isn't there? I wouldn't want to be a police officer right now anyway, would you? But I digress. Dominique, let's focus on uh, burglaries. 500 a day unresolved. That is absolutely shocking. And 
You know, I suppose the explanation for that would be to the police, maybe a lack of resources, but I think the job of the police is to keep the public safe. And the fact that they're unable to do that, I think is completely disgusting. Um, maybe the government is somehow responsible for this in some way, maybe the Home Office, maybe police aren't being supported enough, but um, Northampshire Police, for example, set up a burglary team three years ago, and it was revealed last, last month that since then there have been 3,800 um, less victims of burglary. So perhaps if there was more of a targeted um, approach to stopping burglaries, you'd see less. What about things like neighbourhood watch, by the way? Is that still a thing? Do you still have those neighbourhood watch, you know, do you remember? It, yeah. it is still a thing. I'm not sure really how active they are. Yeah, because that's because often, I don't know, if you knew, if you was a burglar... In fact, you know what? No, I digress. I do have these random thought processes. <laughs> I was about to try and put myself into the mind of a burglar and explain <laughs> what I would do if I was to burglar a house, but then I realised how weird that sounds. So, Peter, I'll just ask you your thoughts. Well, we do all remember the Neighbourhood Watch uh, stickers on front doors, but I think Lee's right. I've not seen as many of them in recent years. Uh, on burglaries, you know, I try not to reduce everything to party politics because it, it does get repetitive, but to me actions have consequences. And I just looked up the House of Commons, according to the House of Commons, 600 police stations were closed in the first eight years after David Cameron was elected. This is a party of law and order. And the justification for closing police stations um, was, of course, austerity. But that means you take police officers out of the community. Mm. Um, they're a bit more in hub-style police stations with a much uh, wider geographical radius. So I think it may be harder to get that local intelligence to investigate. But then secondly, we know, and it's, it's in a sense uh, human rather than unscientific, that even a police station being open just acts as a deterrent. There is less crime in the mile or two around police stations. And I know that that's a behavioural factor, but it is a fact. So I think uh, austerity has consequences and austerity in the justice system, whether it's police or all these poor people who are victims of crime and waiting for their case um, to come to court because of underfunding of the justice system. Mm. I think actions do have consequences. And I know some people might um, point the finger at um, administration and bureaucracy imposed by central government. But to me, the roots of this do go back to public spending cuts under the coalition. I think that's something that probably the left and the right, I mean, I see myself as more of a philosophical conservative rather than as a party political one. But I think that you know, if you are conservative as I am and you believe in order and structure, the police form, you know, an essential pillar of our society and I don't think there should ever be any sort of cutback in that. And I'm afraid to say I agree. I think the Tories have made significant cutbacks when it comes to the police and we are seeing the result of that and I think that's just a fact. Hey. Well, the figures speak for themselves. The proportion of burglaries where a suspect is charged is just 3.3%, but the figure for other crimes is only 5.8%. So if you commit a crime, there's only a 6% chance you'll actually get charged with it. That's pretty low, especially when overall crime has risen in the last two years by 18%. And I'm afraid, you know, Peter's absolutely right, although he make, he's, you know, making a party political point on the eve of the, um, of the local elections. But he is right that um, the, the Conservatives cut 21,329 officers between 2011 and 2018. So you remember that Boris Johnson promised at the last general election to add another 20,000 officers. That would still be a net cut from where we were in 2011. So far, they've only added 12,896. So there's just a fundamental resourcing problem. And actually, Britain is 
lightly policed relative to other countries. So there's only about 211 officers for every 100,000 people in this country. The international median is around 300. So most other European countries have considerably more police officers per head of population. Okay. But I think even within those figures, you're seeing that the police are neglecting a crime that is of particular concern to, um, to homeowners, to ordinary working class people. If you're burgled at home, it's not about the loss of your computer or your TV or your kids' games or whatever it is that's been stolen. It's the sense that your home has been violated. And I think across the country, there's lots of police forces that are simply not taking that seriously enough. They're not even dispatching officers to investigate the scene of the crime. And that basically is an open invitation for burglars to continue. And most burglaries are committed by serial criminals. So you effectively get to know in a certain area that the police are not really going to investigate your crimes. That's pretty appalling. Paddy says, Michelle, if the law in this country really allowed people to protect their property, then he reckons there wouldn't be over 500 burglaries in a day in the first place. Ken, and you're not alone on this, by the way, Ken, about six people have written in and said, we like Michelle, but please, can you have a word with her and tell her how to pronounce the word? It's burglary, not burglary. Oh, OK. Ken, thanks for that. Someone else says, you can definitely see why Michelle failed to 11+. plus. Thank you. Charming. Um, That's harsh. <laughs> Dominique, girl, what was you about to say? Um, I was going to say also that I think it's also an issue to do with um, morale as well. We know that police officers have been under um, a pay freeze since 2020, um, and, that, and that's not something that... 2021, I think that was. And that's not something that, say, nurses and firefighters have had to deal with. And in real terms, um, you know, their pay has actually fallen. Um, By 18%. We've read the same article. Yeah. Let me finish that sentence. 18% okay. real terms fall in police pay in the last 10 years. Yeah, and it's just, it's not in line with living costs. So if you want police officers that are genuinely motivated and want to do the job, then you actually have to provide the right working environments. Otherwise, you get a load of weirdos like Wayne Cousins and other people that go to the force, not because, you know, it's great working conditions, but really because they want to exert strange levels of control over other people's lives. And I genuinely think if you make the working environment better and more inviting, you will then, in the end, get better police officers. Mm. Well, lots of you still writing in about the 11-plus situation. Brendan said, Michelle, I took my 11-plus in 1969. One of the questions was the following. It's made me laugh, this one, Brendan. Uh, question, which is the heaviest, a tonne of lead or a tonne of feathers? Neither. He says, Michelle, I really hope that you can get that one correct. It's the feathers. <laughs> that, was a, that was a joke, by the way. I know a ton is a ton is a ton. Uh, anyway, I said I wouldn't answer any questions, but that one I couldn't resist. Uh, Stuart says, my brother went to a grammar school. I went to a secondary school. He had a great education. I had a rubbish one, I wish, he says. I could have gone to a grammar school myself. Uh, very quickly, because we're just talking about police there. What's everyone's thoughts on boy racers? This couldn't, I saw this in the paper today and I thought, mm, I've got to pick this one up, actually, because uh, you know, we all know someone that's got a car like this, haven't we? By the way, often, I don't know why we call them boy racers because the people I'm thinking of, they're grown men with their daft alloys and their big massive uh, spoilers and their blacked out windows, driving with their loud music, thinking that they're cool. Uh, if any of you watching, by the way, I've got to break it to you. You don't look cool. You look absolutely ridiculous. 
Uh, anyway, now that I've got that off my chest, uh, Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, he's uh, apparently going to clamp down on some of these boy racers that have noisy exhausts. He's going to have uh, noise cameras, apparently, uh, to try and catch these boy racers. I found that fascinating, quite frankly, because... Scary. Yeah, I, I mean, what do you care more about, fixing burglaries or clamping down on boy racers' exhausts? But anyway... Do we trust him? Do we think this is going to come off, this policy? No, I'm sorry. When I read this, you know, people will think, oh, yeah, these people are really annoying, let's ban them. But it won't be just the boy racers that are being fined because you're going to have more surveillance in these areas. And I've, I really do see it as just another way to control people, to track people and, and, and bully people into giving you more money. I, I don't really feel as though it's going to have... Um, the aim that Grant Shapps apparently apparently wants. Peter, I think it's ridiculous. have you got a boy racer car? Uh, no, certainly not. I think oh. boy racers do make people's lives a misery. I live in the inner city in East London and uh, everyone's entitled to a good night's sleep and especially if you've got a baby or if you're looking after an older relative or someone who is unwell, this is really horrible. It'd be great to see something done about boy racers, but again, have to have a note of caution. I think this idea be put in the box of policies marked 48 hours before the local elections. Lee, are you a man that's got a, a big bald exhaust and a spoiler and all the rest of it on your car? I don't even have a driving licence, so I what? do not have one of those cars. You don't have a driving licence? I've never learned to drive. Wow. How come? I can't drive. Well, when I was so... <laughs> you can't drive either? No, but I'm, I'm learning, but because I've recently moved, I've had to stop, but I do really want to drive just for... Ah. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, you were when saying... I, when I was 18, it would have doubled the cost of my parents' insurance to put me on their car, mm -hmm. and we couldn't afford that. So I just... I never learned at that age, and then I went away to university and just... I never really needed it. And, I, and living in London, I just don't... I don't need a car. I know that some people in London do. On the point about boy racers, of course they're annoying, but this is one of those kind of really weak, lame government policies that, as Peter said, are put out just as a kind of casual vote winner. It's already an offence to create alarm, harassment or nuisance. So if it was... We don't need to create a new offence and new fines. The question is, how do you stop people doing it? And the great idea that's come out from Grant Shapps is to install sound cameras, you know, not, not just speed cameras, but sound cameras. So all, what, all, the, all that it's going to do is you'll have cameras that will be spying on people and measuring, exactly. the, measuring the level of noise. And then when people find out that the sound cameras are on that street or this street, they'll just go somewhere else. So the, pro the problem with this is enforcement against antisocial behaviour. And the government hasn't really cracked how to do this, but I'm sure somebody who manufactures and installs these cameras will be making a shed load of money when they win the government contract. Mm, David says there's already a law, Michelle, for noisy exhaust. There is. Uh, James says no one likes boy racers, but the noise cameras are an absolute invasion of privacy. Paul says, uh, boy racers are noisy, but where's then that? They speed and they kill. Get them off the road. And David says, Michelle, Peter is speaking a lot of sense. There you go, Peter. Reading that out because often that's not the feedback we get. We get people often disagreeing with you, so it's good. There you go, people listening, saying that you are speaking a lot of sense tonight. Uh, let me know, by, your, by the way, your whole kind of thought on this police situation. 2.3 million uh, houses, apparently, are a member of, you know, the Neighbourhood Watch that I was asking about earlier on. Are you one of those? Would you join your Neighbourhood Watch scheme? I don't know if I would. I don't know if I would actually... I don't know, sometimes you draw your curtains, you kind of put your telly on and you get into your evening, don't you? I'm not just, sure I'd want to. It just feels a bit nosy. 
poking your nose into other people's business. I think it's a shame. <laughs> I, I mean, I think society is much more atomised than in the heyday of the Neighbourhood Watch, where people would keep an eye out on each other and help secure their own neighbourhood. And today, people often don't know their neighbours. I mean, this is one of the weird things about the pandemic, actually. I lived in kind of a high-rise development, a new build. I didn't know anybody in my development at all, and that's nearly a 1,000 households. And then I started up a COVID uh, mutual aid group and got to know quite a lot of people, and that also uh, fostered a, a Neighbourhood Watch group to try to tackle local crime and antisocial behaviour, which I think has been moderately successful. So, but I think the underlying problem is, you know, if you just rely on the state to police society and you've only got 211 police officers per 100,000 people, mm -hmm. that's not enough resource. So we have to try and take some responsibility ourselves as citizens to maintain order in our own communities. Well, Lee touched brief briefly, Lee touched on a theme I was going to raise, that it does come back to... Uh, how much of a role we all want to play in our own community. So to finish on a quiz question, Neighbourhood Watch in the 1980s, I think, had a peak, but at the same time in the 1980s, who said there is no such thing as society? So I don't answer general knowledge questions. Lee, like Lee will know that. Well, that's a famous one, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. No exactly. thing in society, there are only um, individuals and families, as she put it. Mm. But Neighbourhood Watch is part of this type of thing, isn't it? Society, cooperation, playing a part in your community. Well, there is such a thing as a society. So I think that's silly. Andy says, Michelle, what happens though if two cars pass the camera together? I don't know, Andy. I didn't come up with a scheme. I imagine it won't work very well. Anyway, that is pretty much all we've got time for. Uh, thank you very much, Dominique, Peter, Lee, for your company. And thank you as well for your uh, company at home tonight. Have yourself a fantastic evening, whatever you're doing. And I'll see you at six o'clock tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.